0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: So it's the Convergent Science Network podcast at our 10th anniversary BCBT summer school. I'm here with Aurora Thibaut, University of Liège in Belgium and University Hospital, where she investigates uh, consciousness. And in your, in your talk this morning, you gave us a very extensive overview of the different approaches that people take to, to assess clinically the level of consciousness of, of patients. So, so what are the exact problems there that, that you face in the clinic in assessing consciousness?
0: So um, we have there are different uh, types of problems that we can face. So we have to understand that those patients they have really really severe brain injuries that we can't always um, objective. And so some patients they have aphasia, so they can be fully conscious, but they just don't understand when you are talking to them. Or um, you they can have severe motor impairment. Or such a lot, a lot of pain that also reduce the level of consciousness or like the way they can express consciousness. So we have um, we have to understand the, those patients. We have, we need ourselves to be patients. So this is from uh, the clinical point of view that um, that it doesn't mean that if a patient when we when we ask something and if we don't see something, it's not that the patient is not able to do it or doesn't want to do it, but it may be because the state of vigilance is low or is in pain or is just uh, paraplegic, um, such things. So this is from our, the, um, like the clinical point of view, like from a clinician. But we also have to face uh, family's expectations, for instance. So we need to, of course, we want to see a sign of consciousness. Uh, we saw earlier this morning that... It's so important to detect such signs of consciousness because we know that it will affect the prognosis, but also it may affect end of life decision and um, a rehabilitation program, the, 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 the effort that will be put to, to bring this patient to a good rehabilitation program, so and so on. So it's really important to detect this first sign of consciousness. But on the other hand, we can't we need to be clear and we need to be sure when we see something that it is true and like like it's um, something that is conscious and not just a reflex. so somehow it's really hard that we have this scale and so for instance we have uh the auditory function and the common following and the, the patient needs to do it like at least three times out of four so i'm gonna ask you train okay try to squeeze my hand really really strongly and if the patient does it only twice out of four then it doesn't count and sometimes also it's because that's a rule. We need to have rules, and we need to be sure that it's not like a grasping reflex, for instance. So, this for us it's also hard. But for the family, it's really hard to to make them understand that all the movements they see, or sometimes they have the impression that their their son they are following them in the room, and to make them understand that this might not be a sign of that it's not a real per- visual pursuit of such things. So it's really hard sometimes to because. To disentangle, like what is actually conscious and what is not, and us as clinicians trying to find a uh, sign of consciousness, but we need to be one hundred percent sure that is conscious. And with uh, dealing with the families, with all their, their expectations, so it's sometimes really challenging. Mm-hmm.
1: So, how many different, let's say, levels or or forms of consciousness do you distinguish in the clinic?
0: So, as disorder of consciousness itself. So far, we, I mean, we really like to categorize and to subcategorize. Um, so, so far consciousness, at least for patients like us, has been seen as dichotomic. So you are conscious or non-conscious. Now we think that it's maybe more like a continuum, but now we have different um, states. So we have the patients that are in coma, uh, con- um No eyes opening and no consciousness of their environment. And then give you the vegetative state. Uh, We prefer now unresponsive wakefulness syndrome where the patients uh, recovered eyes opening, but that doesn't mean that they are conscious. It's just eye opening uh, and it's not even related to sleep wake cycle, um, physiological sleep wake cycle. And then you have this minimally conscious state where the patients are minimally conscious but they are still not able to communicate, so you can't interact functionally with them, but they can show some sign of consciousness. And in this state, there are the mini, uh, minimally conscious state minus, a non-reflexive movement, and then when they recover some language abilities, such as common following, uh, intelligible verbalization, or intentional communication, we say that they are in minimally conscious state plus, because they can understand uh, us a bit.
1: So now, how many patients are we talking about? How many patients? So in yeah. a, in, in the general population, how how many patients it's do you encounter?
0: So um, luckily, it's just a really very small populations. So for instance, it's a couple of hundreds. I know in Belgium and same in uh, the Netherlands. So it's really yeah not a lot. Um, that's also. Uh, Something that's why it's so hard to find treatments for them because it's not a stroke or Alzheimer's when, you know, we have like so many pharmaceutical therapy uh, uh, companies that will try to sponsor your study. So it's really hard to get uh, attention for this such a small population Mm -hmm. of patients.
1: And then what's the accuracy we have today in assessing the the state of these patients?
0: So clinically, mm-hmm. we know that if we use GCS, so the GCS, or the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is the one that is the most used in intensive care where we really need to assess correctly those patients, in fact, the rate of uh, clinical misdiagnosis is still 30%. So it's really high. Then if we use a more more uh, accurate scale, such as a Coma Recovery Scale Revise, so, yeah, true, maybe we clinically we will be able to correctly assess like we, think, we thought before, 100% of the patient because it was, it is still the best uh, clinical scale, the most accurate, but still, even though those patients are clinically unconscious, when we assess the, the patient with uh, different types of uh, neuroimaging tools, then we still see that about 30% of them, so one third, present brain activity that is uh, closer to either minimal consciousness or even higher state of consciousness. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, but then you also in your talk described a, a new approach, which was like combining um, perturbations of the brain using TMS mm-hmm. with different complexity measures to look at what the impact is of these perturbations on brain networks. And you, you showed to us that if you then use the appropriate classifiers, like support vector machines, I think is what you used, that you can then rather accurately distinguish these different patient groups. Mm -hmm. So so do you really see that then as a solution to this diagnostic problem you're describing?
0: I think um, in the intensive care or uh, like early rehabilitation units, it's still not a solution because I think it's not, it's in too early stage and um, it's Almost impossible in this stage uh, to implement that in clinics. It's really made for uh, research centers. So in that like practical point of view, it's we will not be able to do that like today or tomorrow. But uh, I think maybe in the, in the near future we are working on that on different paradigms or like using other um, stimuli rather than than this TMS, this uh, that uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, and also simpler or easier to interpret or direct, uh, the, uh, like an, ag- an algorithm that could give a direct feedback of the state of the patients, like this PCI, this perturbation complexity index. If this could be done, like, if we could get a response, like, two minutes after, then that, yes, I think at this, time that at this uh, point, this could be useful, even though we are still are investigating in that technique. And um, we discussed that earlier today. We know that we said that so far the accuracy is 100% and that we can detect consciousness at the single patient's level, which is already already like a huge step as compared to other techniques such as MRI and PET scan. However, that doesn't mean we still need to understand that if a patient is... um, diagnosed as being in a vegetative state because of the index, that doesn't mean that one that for sure he will never recover because we did that with like subacute chronic patients and then there were like two years post-injury and then they in vegetative state or unresponsive wavefulness syndrome and then we did this uh, TMS-EG and we saw that, oh, they were above this threshold of, and then, okay, and one year forward, indeed, they recovered. That's great. But we now have to do that like at different time points at 1 week a uh, post injury at 1 month post injury and so on and just, just to have like a better understanding if when can it predict the recovery if it's only for chronic patients or it can be also for acute or subacute and because th- and this still we, we don't know so we still have to investigate in that sense uh, a lot
1: mm-hmm. but now the so if you look at this this classification you've also distinct threshold values right where mm-hmm. you say well below this threshold of complexity in the response it's a vegetative state If it's above that threshold, it's minimally conscious, and then there's a next threshold after which you might say, well, this patient is actually normal or possibly asleep or recovered. So, but now if if you talk about life and death decisions, Mm -hmm. right? Do you really see this measure that there is there going to be a threshold value where you're going to say, well, below this threshold, we can switch off the machines.
0: At this point, we can't do that. Sure. We can't because, as I said, it's, we don't know when. I mean, we did that again with chronic patients, and then they recovered. But like now in the acute stage, we can't use that threshold because we know that the brain, maybe at that time, we were sure that the patient were in unresponsive wakefulness syndrome, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, this patient that had the injury three days before, that maybe two days later, is going to recover. That we don't know. So I, today, we really can't use that technique to but learn. do
1: you think it will go in that direction would you recommend it
0: i think we need to to do studies to yeah to do like um TDS, uh, sorry tms eeg in the intensive care like very early as we do the n20 the the somatic sensory evoked avoc- uh, potential just to and so far this is the only technique and only diagnostic tool that we can use to make like and with like a very high um, uh, sensitivity rate to make sure the patients, the chance of recovery are, are like minimal. And so, and we know that um, this this kind of, like uh, treatment withdrawal are done based on, on this antibody um, test, but that's the only one. So if one day tms is gonna be used for that, maybe, but I'm not sure I think it's going to be a good predictor of recovery, but I'm not sure if we're going to be able to use it as early as the intensive care.
1: Mm. Okay. So then, but how objective is the method really? Because, so you depend now on the TMS, that means you have to stimulate at a certain location with a certain intensity and a certain duration. Mm -hmm. You have to measure at other locations, but now dependent on the lesions that patients have, You might have to introduce variability because an area where you stimulated one patient, that area isn't there anymore in the other patient. So, so how do you assure that the method stays objective?
0: So, so far, I think that uh, there are really really a few patients where we couldn't do it; that was impossible to apply the test. So, because we have uh, different uh, stimulating areas, and so so far we were always able to 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 find one that where we could we were sure of what we were recording was true. Um, but that's true, we have to adapt to the patients. Uh, also, something that is really important, that like now, it takes hours to do it. So that means that we can't, In the, if we take the example of the intensive care, we can't uh, apply this TMS for two hours. It's impossible. It's like practically Impossible. So there are like many, many limitations that are we that that's why it's still in the research process. That it's it's not gonna be tomorrow that we are gonna do use it in in clinic, but um, but there yeah there are like a lot of limitations that we need to surpass and yeah to see how accurate it can be uh, where where we have to place the the stimulation uh, depending on the patient's brain lesion or if we can. Uh, a solution, and this is what we are uh, gonna do soon, is uh, to test other types of stimulation, like, for instance, um, maybe we can use like sounds, which is way less invasive than uh, TMS. But uh, as you said, like TMS, the problem is if the pa- we are stimulating a, pa- a, re- a brain region that is dead. We sound, what if, if the patient is deaf? So we are always gonna face limitations. But yeah, I think the the thing is. We need to see what is, uh, could be used in most of the patients and what can be easily implemented into clinics. Mm-hmm. Because research is beautiful, it's really exciting, but at the end, the aim is to be able to use that technique to have like a proper diagnostic. So for example, in Liege, we are really lucky so we can see the patients for a week. And then we have, we can do TMS EEG, we can do fMRI, we can do PET scan, we can do high-density EEGs. And then with all those tests and like many, many clinical assessments, then we can pose a diagnostic. And even though we're not like 100% sure, what if it's only high-density EEG showed some sign of consciousness? So it's always a long discussion, but even with all those techniques that are amazing, and I'm not sure how many centers can provide that, we're still not 100% sure sometimes. We are still some dose. And then we follow the patient and you can see, oh, yes, this patient recovers something. And so, yeah, it's still a, a discussion, but we need to make neuroimaging tools available and that can be used in, in clinics. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think that EEG is a really good option. We can find like a bit entropy like it's like just three electrodes and we can already do good measurements but we also need to find the algorithm behind just to make them like to so they can analyze the data like real time and so give can give a a feedback uh, like a real-time feedback so we talked about the communication in the fMRI and then but what I mean, it's amazing to know that thirty percent of the patients are actually conscious, even though they can't show them, uh, show that to, to to us and to the family. But we can't bring the patients to the fMRI every time we ask want to ask them a question, right?
1: Right. But then, so again, the one hand of course the clinical objectives of these measures, which are really very important and relevant. But on the other hand. Studying these patients must also help us to understand consciousness, mm-hmm. and this is also one reason why why this whole research field is 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 driving itself forward. And um, in your presentation, you made an important distinction there between what you called an internal consciousness and an external consciousness that you felt, at least in these patient groups you look at, is always popping out as an important distinguishing feature. So so what, what do you mean exactly with internal and external consciousness?
0: Oh, so um, so the inter the, the internal consciousness is the consciousness of yourself. So what we say uh, call also like the little voice. Okay, so when you are like, oh, for instance, you 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 hurt yourself and you're in pain, and then you focus on yourself. So this is like really, or when you your internal thoughts, that's the internal consciousness. And then external consciousness is gonna be the consciousness of your environment. So if you are listening to someone talking, this is. The external consciousness and they are anti correlated. That doesn't mean that if one is up, the other one is zero, but that usually, if you're like fully concentrated on yourself, you will be less aware of what is happening around you. And this is, has been shown like many times, and, at the, and the contrary as well. And so, we did a study where we uh, compared those two kinds of uh, consciousness so, more uh, internal related. Uh, um, thought, and then more external-related thought, and then we compared the the network that were activated for one and the other, and so we saw that we had, like, the external consciousness network, which is the lateral frontoperator cor- uh, cortices, and then the internal one, uh, which is more, like, the mesofrontal uh, cortex, a- anterior-singular cortex, and then pre and and um, post- uh, posterior-singular cortex, so one is external for the external consciousness network, and one is more internal for the uh internal consciousness network and normally they should be uh, anti correlated. So mm-hmm. one, when one is activated the other one is not. So the
1: internal the internal conscious system you would then equate with a more metacognitive self reflective state. It's not necessarily experience of hunger or of a state of the body. It's really more a metacognitive mm-hmm. self reflective state. Yeah. Right? Okay. This is
0: how we we do mm-hmm. but maybe we do it like in a more simplistic way of the that's uh, the way we dis- we categorize consciousness between two components, awareness, uh, wakefulness, but yes.
1: But then do you envision that also as, let's say, two subsystems of consciousness that sort of exclusively are active? It's either one or the other? No,
0: so it's not exclusive. Okay. It's not exclusive. I mean, I am not saying that, again, if you are listening to me right now, you are not you are not conscious of yourself at all. It's like, but one is one is highly activated, then the other one is less activated.
1: So they are in a competitive relation. Is that what you would say? Are they competing?
0: I'm not. I'm not sure. I would say that they are competing, but at least for instance, what we with a new study, but there we were focusing on the default mode network, and so we like we know that within the the the. the network we need to have like highly con- the, the area needs to be highly connected but then we found out that in patients with disorder of consciousness you, we also have hyper um, hyperconnectivity which is pa- uh, pathologic so for instance in pa- in healthy control when the div- the default mode network is highly connected then there is no uh, other connection with other brain regions while in patients you have this hyper uh, connectivity that's so meaning that um, Concurrently, at the same time, the areas that are uh, that should be connected in the development network, then there are also o- other areas are also uh, activated, and this is like the pathological hyperconnectivity only seen in patients with disorder of consciousness. But in this
1: case, connectivity would mean some correlation structure in the data that you measure from that brain, either in EEG or fMRI.
0: So here's an fMRI mm-hmm. F-MRI. the fMRI, and yeah,
1: so. so it's a rather slow signal,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it is related to let's say correlations mm-hmm. among the different measurement points. Right. But now, would that mean that some correlations go up that that connect these subsystems? Or are the intrinsic correlations within the subsystems going down, so you are revealing the inter- subsystem correlation? Can you distinguish these two explanations?
0: These are really good questions, but um, you mean like I, I would say that depending on the, the 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 state of your mind, then one system will be first activated, but and then the other one will be less.
1: From no, a you know, pure, let's say, fMRI perspective, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what I'm measuring is correlations among my voxels, mm-hmm. right? And you could say if for the for the control condition, I see a certain correlation within these two subsystems, and I don't see it between, right? right. But now you could argue that underlying that is some causal structure. And that maintains this intra-module correlation. And as a result, you don't see any inter-module correlation. But now in the coma patient, it's this intra-module correlation that you might lose. And as a result, you are unmasking this relationship between the two modules. right? So is it really indicative of anything that is specific to these states of consciousness, or is it just like an artifact of, let's say, losing internal coupling within systems? So that's a bit the question I'm, I'm after. Can we distinguish that?
0: I think that in the state that we are now, we are, we, we are not able to, to do that uh, like as specific. But, uh, yeah, I think that it's more like in coma patients than it's going to be this more like an un- un- uh mm-hmm. Activity and as, like, so many brain regions are damaged, then it can be possible that one of them is trying to to activated instead of the other one, and then it, it just creates some kind of Arnold mm-hmm. uh, connectivity that is, like in fact, more that creates more damage that, or at least, yeah, functional damage that it, if it, yeah, so more like mm-hmm. an Arnold
1: right? So, not an, um what you also then discussed in, in that context was the subjective experience in, in that sense of these patients. And in particular, you, you talked about locked-in syndrome patients, where you looked at their reported state of, let's say, satisfaction with life or mm-hmm. happiness. And you had this, this surprising result that actually they showed levels of satisfaction or happiness with life that was comparable to healthy controls, which, of course, to us sounds very counterintuitive because they're... they're their bandwidth of communication with the world is severely reduced so so how do you interpret that that result do you really think it is an accurate reflection of their state of being or is there is there some let's say recalibration also for them of what happiness means
0: mm-hmm. i think i think the two uh, propositions are, are correct so first uh, we it needs to be said and it was acknowledged in the paper that We send the questionnaires to thousands of patients and only a few, uh, a small proportion replied. So it's possible that we got the reply from people that are actually not that depressed. That's a possibility. So maybe our, I mean, this really um, interesting result where we see that the patient in Lactin syndrome on average are not unhappy, but they looked as happy as uh, LC controls. Um, I mean, on average, again, I mean, not at a single uh, subject level, but so that's, that's a possibility. And then that's true uh, to that, those patients, they can find um, their happiness in other things that we first is imp- almost impossible to conceive because we are not in, I mean, the way they are. I, I met a lot of uh, locked in patients and they are going on vacations. That for us, like, oh, how can they go on vacation? But they are, they do, and they and they go like twice, th- three times a year, and they still have like a really good relationship with their family. And but one thing that we found out in 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 such uh, in that study and other follow up studies is that the more a patient is able to interact with the environment, the happier he is, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that means that that's true. Interaction with your environment is import- an, an important factor. For a subject, uh, someone to be happy, so um, I don't know. It would be like so interesting. For instance, we had those patients that are like in complete locked-in syndrome, when even they can't move their eyes. So the only way, I mean, we had a case of uh, patients like that. So it was impossible to know that the patient was conscious without neuroimaging. It was impossible. We detected did this uh, that he, she was conscious thanks to uh, uh, the, uh, the PET scan. And we thought, oh my God, but the PET scan looks like you and me. I mean, it was impressive. And then uh, we did other uh, uh, tests and they all say, okay, yes, in- indeed it looks like uh, she's really she's conscious. But still it was, uh, she couldn't communicate like uh, like what, how we're used to see in, in Lactin syndrome with the eyes, n- no movement at all, nothing. And so, yeah. Can we say that this patient might be happy in a way i have no idea but this is a question that could be asked
1: but now with with these patients there you also showed us that there are methods that use fmri um, recordings with mental imagery Mm -hmm. um, to to help people to at least give yes or no answers by imagining that they are behaving in some context or they're navigating some environment right and do you think this would be a useful interface for the, all these patients, or you think it's too cumbersome? and That's not going to work yet.
0: I think the EEG one is going to maybe uh, be easier to apply. I mean, in clinics again, but um, also the thing with all those um, motor imagery is that we have a lot, a really high rate of false negative. So many patients in minimally conscious countries that are clinically answering uh, to comments, they can't perform the task. And also 75 to 80% of the LC control, they can't do it. So we also need to find a way that to make sure, like an easy way and, and a way uh, like a task, a motor task, that can be, I mean, done by almost everyone. Mm-hmm.
1: And how are you going to deal with the variability of the neural response across all these patients?
0: repeating yeah repeated assessments I guess mm-hmm. yeah okay I mean there is no other solutions we mm. we, we, we did a really nice study that was published uh, really recently in archive kind of Neurology and and we have to do at least five clinical assessments so if we we take these five clinical assessments maybe that we need to do five fMRI or five mm-hmm. EEGs and uh, yeah it's kind of burdensome but they are fluctuating so we have no other options we have to could you imagine that,
1: that in those patients we, we start to implant devices, an e or something, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. measure uh, states of the brain to actually help communication? Would you see that as a way forward?
0: Yeah, I think we, we I mean, not us, but other labs are doing it already with locked in patients. So, yeah, this is something that may be useful and, and, and maybe also to find like the perfect time to, to, to say, okay, this is a moment when we have to do something with the subject.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So now, in your talk, you also showed us a possible, let's say, mechanical uh, interpretation of states of consciousness that's focused very much on the thalmocortical system, going mm-hmm. back to, uh, to Nick Schiff and and others, where they looked at, it's basically the, the, the modulation of the thalmocortical system that will define these states of consciousness. And um, in that specific model, you also look at additional subcortical loops over the basal ganglia and so on, right? And it's a bit a sort of model you might also apply to Parkinsonism or so mm-hmm. on, right? So it's really whether you are switching the thalamus in pathological states of, of um, low-frequency bursting. Do you feel that that model is, is sufficient to understand these patients you look at? Or is it more like really a very first approximation of what we need and what is missing?
0: So, um, yeah, I think, so far, it has been a really nice model that can explain why some treatments work and why others don't. The most impressive one is the Zalpidem, uh, of course, but uh, so far it fits. And uh, we, for instance, with TDCS, we have tried uh, TDCS in different cortical areas, and the prefrontal one is the one that works the best. So, we were, okay, yeah, it makes totally sense. But true, I think it's still uh, it's still like an hypothesis, and and but it's a nice direction if we need to to try new treatments to to at least have a rationale behind what we do, and and that could be, yeah, some of some help if we want to target some specific brain mm-hmm. regions.
1: Right, because the model does not really account or include the role of neuromodulators, for instance, right? It doesn't explicitly take it into account. Sure, I,
0: I think it doesn't take into account everything. Mm-hmm. It's really specific to... It was like... I mean, the model existed before, but it was used for disorder of consciousness due to Zolpidem because it was really specific to this drug. and And I think that this might be really useful for, to explain again some treatments, but maybe only in anoxic patients because maybe the stratum is not injured at all in some traumatic patient and then why TDCS is working. So no, it, of course, it, I think it doesn't fit everything, but I, it works well and maybe it works for very, very specific patients. And then we can use it, fully use it to try to treat them and improve their recovery. But so yeah, we still need to understand that better.
1: So look, um, so you finished your PhD in, in, in Liège with uh, Steve Lares and now you, you did your uh, postdoc in Boston and now you're moving back to, to Liège to, to sort of build your, your career as, as a young and upcoming uh, scientist, um, but now in your experience in this field and also as a clinician, what would be Aurora's law to study consciousness and the mind?
0: I think I would like to believe that um, the unresponsive wakefulness syndrome is not, does not exist, and we don't have the tool yet to detect consciousness in every patient. Uh, we have seen patients that were in unresponsive wakefulness syndrome for years, and then one day they recovered. Uh, like three years later, they could, they were able to to talk, even though they, because of severe spasticity and motor impairment, they will never be able to walk again. Or be like independence but still so this yeah I think I would like to 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 believe that this is the possibility and to try to find way that we, that so we will be able to to find this consciousness even in in patients that are like clinically uh, unresponsive
1: so it's, it's keep hope yeah always keep hope okay and then so five years from now I'm going to come visit you in Liège. Whether you like it or not, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna check then whether a, a prediction you're gonna make today was f- falsified or verified. So what's the one prediction that you would like to see really tested in this five-year framework or fr- time frame?
0: So I'm gonna be really clinical again, but I think that um, a lot of Treatments options are available, but we can't use them. And I would like to to m- stimulate the the translation of such treatment. One of them is a TDCS. for me it's an like, amazing tool, and that's why I did my PhD at the Neuromodulation uh, Lab with uh, Felipe Fregni. And I think it's so hard to translate that to clinics. And I mentioned before that it was um, really hard to to get attention for these very small populations of patients. So so my hope is that we will be, we can um, have clinical trials and have this translation to to clinics and use all the treatments we have to for for like We have so many things that we can use for such patients that that it will increase either the comfort or the recovery for sure and this is something that I will always work for so my hope.
1: All right, over to well, Thank you very much for this conversation.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.